Hello and welcome to this JHI podcast. My name is Richard Callis. And I am Lily Dachiv. Today we are joined by Pamela Long to discuss her new book, Engineering the Eternal City, Infrastructure, Topography, and the Culture of Knowledge in Late 16th Century Rome. Pamela is an independent historian of science and technology who has written several prize-winning books, one called Openness, Secrecy, Authorship, Technical Arts and the Culture of Knowledge Making from Antiquity to the Renaissance, published in 2001, and another in 2011 called Artisan Practitioners and the Rise of the New Sciences, 1400 to 1600. Among the many prizes she has been awarded for her work is the MacArthur Fellowship. Okay, so to start us off, Pamela, um, can you maybe summarize the topic and scope of your book? Well, thank you for uh, having me on this podcast. Um, Yes, I can try to. Um, So the topic is engineering in Rome in the late 16th century um, during about a 30-year period. And it's also... Now, engineering is a kind of an anachronistic term um, for the 16th century, but it's about things that we would call civic engineering and hydraulic engineering, such as repair of aqueducts, um, repair of streets, cleaning of streets, um, flood control. And it's also about topography. And there are two chapters on um, maps of Rome and um, the topography of Roman antiquarian uh, arguments in late 16th century Rome about ancient topography. So, um, and these two subjects go together very well, it turns out, and they're very related in the late 16th century. Uh, So could you tell us um, in general how you came to this topic? So you've written so extensively on the history of science and technology, and we were wondering um, how the engineering projects of the 16th century Rome um, came to be your special topic. For this book. Well, um, I, I sort of came upon it by accident, in, the, in a sense. Um, when I actually started this book, um, you know, it seems like eons ago, in <laughs> 1999, I went to Rome, and I had, I had my first book, Openness, Secrecy, Authorship, was in print. And it was um, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and they were telling me that I had to cut out some large amount of material. And there, and also there was a lot of material that um, I didn't get, I didn't put in. I had researched. Um, I tend to over-research everything, so I had totally over-researched the material about machines, almost very little of which got into that book, and. Um, So one thing that didn't get into the book was the wonderful treatise by Domenica Fontana about raising the Vatican obelisk and about other of his projects for Sixtus V. So I thought, well, I'll just write a little book, and it'll be a short, easy book, and uh, it'll, it'll be about raising the obelisk starting here, and then I'll go from there. And so that's really how it started. And I went to Rome. I I barely remembered any Italian, and I didn't know anybody in Rome, and I had no idea where any of the archives were or what to do. But um, And it was freezing cold, and I was staying in a nun's place uh, with no heat, and it rained for the entire time I was there. It was horrible, but I've been addicted to Rome ever since. (laughs) Okay, that sounds great. Um, So maybe turning more sort of to the argument of the book, so can you speak a little more about your methodology and the book's connections with the sort of broader historiography of early modern knowledge making? 
So many of your case studies, they really straddle the boundaries between history and history of science and science and technology, art history, intellectual history. So how do you see your book speaking to the other work done in this field? Um, well, part of my, I mean, I should say first that part of my idea about this book was that I was very interested in processes. I wasn't so, I mean, the, the history of technology is really infected by a kind of teleological approach in which the, a finished project or new invention is always the goal. And um, not only me, other people are pushing back against that now, but I certainly have been for a long time. And so I thought the way to get to process, like how do, how do they decide on what to do if a bridge is broken, um, who, who decides to fix it? Uh, where does the money come from? How, who decides who the engineers are? Who gets the con, uh, contract to do this? Where do they get the materials? You know, what is the process? And this is, these are questions for every single um, issue that I uh, uh, work on in the book. And um, it turns out that, that it's completely a muddy water. There, there are no there are no protocols, there are no, and there are constant conflicts. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, that, I mean, that's how I respond to the history of technology, but I think the history of that technology and, you know, knowledge about the natural world and the history of knowledge and intellectual history, art history, are all very intercon... They're only separated by modern disciplinary uh, structures, but... If you go back into the 16th century, there, especially in the early modern period, they're highly um, connected. So I think that I think the book speaks to all these fields, just because I I don't conceive of myself as a historian narrowly of technology or of science. I just like I don't know, walk into the archive and start looking around. So I mean, I hope they, it speaks to. Um, all the fields. It, 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 for one thing I can say is that <clears throat> it's about all these concrete projects, but it's also because it's about how they decide. It's also about their all their arguments and discussions about it, and that is, that has to do with the history of knowledge. I think. So can you, can you maybe illustrate that point by talking a little bit more about your first chapter, where you talk talk about sort of the troubled waters and how a lot of experts say that, that you either should or shouldn't drink water from the Tiber which is continuously overflowing all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there was a big argument about um, whether you should drink uh, Tiber River water, and some physicians thought that that's the best water in the world to drink, which is horrifying to a modern person because it was filled with Roman sewage, I mean, of both humans and animals. Um, but, of course, they didn't have a germ theory of disease, and if it looked clean, they were concerned with dirty water, but if it looked clean, they felt that it was clean. And then others um, um, thought that the water was um, as horrible as we would think it was, and that aqueduct, aqueduct water would be much preferable, which is what uh, we would think, I think. So there was, um, but there was an argument about that and about many other things about how to prevent the flooding of the Tiber River. The interesting thing is the arguments 
um, for the most part, were carried on by all kinds of different people in Rome, different people of different professional levels, by practitioners and also by very learned, um, you know, scholars of Greek and um, by uh, carpenters and everyone in between. And that's what makes Rome. Um, and that's what makes the early modern period very interesting because I don't think it's just characteristic of Rome, but uh, I think it is very characteristic of Rome. Actually, exactly on that point, we wanted to ask you um, to, to talk more about what triggered these debates across the levels of, levels of society, as you put it. Like you say in the introduction that the sack of Rome in 1527 and the great flood of um, 1530, uh, you say, in a sense, forced new beginnings. And we were wondering, you know, there were certainly many floods across, you know, from antiquity mm -hmm. up to this period. And why, why now? <laughs> why did something start to change here? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I do think... Well, because there's there's this construct Renaissance Rome, mm -hmm. and Renaissance Rome really ends in 1527. And although there have been many sacks of Rome, the sack of 1527 was, it went on for 10 um, months, and it was an egregiously awful sack that destroyed so many people and so many documents and so many buildings. Um, and it was really... And and I think Rome, Romans even today remember the sack of 1527, not all those other sacks. Mm. And also in the 15th century, I do believe that um, the 1530 flood, the, the floods became worse in the 15th century. Now, floods, of course, went back to the ancient times, but the ancient Romans... Didn't they, the rich elite Romans lived on the hills for the most part, and they their grain um, their grain uh, storage facilities were near the river, but they were very um, carefully uh, armored against flood water, and the ancient Romans didn't actually care if the plebs died in floods. I mean, mm -hmm. I have to say, and so. Um, and in the medieval and then Renaissance periods, the people moved, the Rome's population was expanding, and the population was down by the river because there wasn't enough water on the hills for them to, for anybody to really uh, live or not many people. So, um, so the flood of 1530 was one of the worst. And you see the flood markers all around Rome, and the flood of 1530 is still way up above. It's slightly above the flood of 1557, and it's way above all the other ones. So, so I think they had to start from there. You know, they had to start again. Paul III had to start again thinking about um, not uh, thinking about rebuilding the city entirely. The city was, in many ways, destroyed. Mm -hmm. I guess also going on that topic, um, a lot of colorful individuals like um, Paul III and um, Cardinal Montepulciano especially stuck out to me as this administrative genius who you know, succeeded where so many others before him had failed with the Aqua Vergine. Mm -hmm. And we were just wondering, um, you know, how did this cast of characters come to be, how you chose them, or did they choose you? <laughs> oh, they <laughs> chose me. Yes. <laughs> I had nothing to do with choosing them. Um, <clears throat> I think... Um, so, uh, Cardinal Montepulciano, so I just came, gradually um, came to understand that Montepulciano was crucial. For example, um, there started to be a congregation um, created by um, 
Pius V. And Pius V has been cast in some quarters as a great urbanizing pope. I don't think he was. I think he had Cardinal Montepulciano. And it's clear, I mean, the me the meetings of this congregation on streets, bridges, and streets, bridges, and, um, sorry, um, I, I, I'm, I'm losing it. But anyway, um, <clears throat> this congregation that went from 1568 to 1588, so as long as Cardinal Montepulciano was alive, he was there at every meeting. It was held in his palace, and he was uh, in charge of it. He did not miss a single meeting. And um, also, it's said in other sources that he was extremely efficient. He straightened out the treasury of uh, Julius III in the 1550s. The treasury was a complete mess. He was just an highly competent administrator. Um, the other, another person that found me was Piero Ligorio, who was, and I went to Torino um, to. Uh, read his, he has like hundreds of manuscript pages, huge volumes that he wanted to have printed, and like virtually none of them were ever printed, but a beautiful handwriting, and he goes on and on and on for hundreds of pages, which are this writing interspersed with rants about what is going on in Rome. And Piero Ligorio was in Rome, um, from the from when he arrived in the 1530s until he was forced to leave basically in 1566. So um, in that period, uh, he's a wonderful source, especially for the later part of that period. Um, another character that forced itself or that found me was Pius IV because when I started this book. It was Sixtus V that was the great engineering pope, and nobody ever talked about Pius IV. And Pius IV, whose reign was from 1560 to 1565, was just as important, if not more important, than Sixtus V in terms of urbanizing Rome. In terms of his, he was passionately interested in Rome. He um, he was interested in cities. He went around Rome by himself or with very few people all the time until there began to be assassination attempts, and then he stopped doing that. But um, so he's another one that found me. Andrea, well, I could go on forever <laughs> too. Um, but I guess what's interesting is that in a way you're rewriting the history of how we think about Rome, how Rome came into being in this period. So in a way you're adding new characters to the. Um, to the cast of characters that we already know. Um, so to what extent are you also intervening in, uh, in this historiography by saying it's not just important to look at popes and like the famous names, mm -hmm. but also looking at art artisans and like the people on the ground that do the work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think very much so. I mean, one of my, one of the ideas that came to me and, uh, and I feel very strongly about is that the, the whole idea of papal absolutism is a myth in this period. But if you if you just look at papal documents, you're going to assume. And I read so many books that just say the Pope ordered this, and then then it happened. And the then it happened is the crucially problematic uh, of of the historiography of Rome. Um, and if you just look at papal documents, you're going to think that there's papal absolutism. I mean, certainly the popes wanted to be absolutely powerful, and they just weren't, because Rome, 
Rama's, there were many centers of patronage, and uh, the, I mean, the Farnese were, for the most part, as powerful as the popes. It depends who they are and what's happening at the moment and which pope is pope, which person is pope. But um, there are many, many other actors, and the way to find them is to rove, in, rove around, uh, I call it rummaging in, ar rummage in the archives. That's the way to find them, because if you just go to one archive and you're in one um, font of sources, then you're going to get one point of view. And it's very important. For this book, it was very important to see that that was a point of view that wasn't fact. That was just a point of view. If you go to another archive, you find the other point of view. It happens, which is very nice for the research. Yeah, so actually, maybe you can speak a little bit more about your experience in the archives. We already got a glimpse <laughs> of the your your horrible first time in Rome with the rain and something I definitely cannot relate to, but um, maybe you can take us into the archive and walk us through some of the discoveries you made there. So what really stood out for you and which archives you found particularly uh, useful? Or well, um, if you know Rome, and if you don't know Rome, this won't, I guess, mean very much. But, but in many cities, there's one major archive. In Rome, there are many archives. And so um, there's the, the Vatican Library, which um, is a library, print, has prints and manuscripts. And, then, and the manuscript room had many things that were very important. And then there's the Vatican Archive, which is different. That had many things. The, uh, perhaps most important was the Capitoline Archive, where all the records... So Rome was governed by the papacy and by the communal government. And uh, that's where all the conflict came. And the, and the communal government's records of meetings are in the Capitoline Archive. And there's a complete run of minutes of the Capitoline um, of the Capitoline Council's meetings in the late 16th century. And so one thing I decided to do is to read full runs of the documents because, and it was sort of a, I guess, romantic idea, but it was you know, like, I kept saying, why am I doing this? It took me hundreds of hours to do, to read all, I read all the Capitoline Council minutes from 1557 till 1590. And But I really discovered lots of things by doing that, which I wouldn't have discovered by having a reference and finding it and then um, going away. The other thing I did was um, whenever I got a, a boost, uh, most documents are, are collected in, in bound, um, as, as many people know, bound volumes called booste, and, and the documents in them are not necessarily related to each other, because you'll have a whole series. Sometimes they are. And um, I would always have a practice of, um, once I found what I was looking for, turning the pages to the end. And, I mean, this sounds like so obvious, but I found this wonderful letter by um, Matteo da Castello, Bartoloni da Castello, uh, pleading to the council to please let him put another foundation on the pier of the of the Ponte Roto, as we call it. I mean, no, I no, I have never seen that document anywhere, anywhere in anything I've ever read, and I was just like amazed to find this document, and I found it by, you know, I was looking at one thing at the beginning of the busta, and then I 
turn the pages and oh, isn't this interesting? And you know, I get to the end, the last page, and here is this letter that so that was one. Um, once in the Vatican Library, I um, was reading, uh, I, I ordered up a treatise by An Andrea Bacci, who wrote many treatises on the Tiber River, and the, and the book was filled with wormholes, so I just couldn't, and like, oh, what, what a pain is this? And so I, I, I found there was another edition, I ordered it up. It was a, a beautiful leather-bound edition. And inside, on the fly leaves, was a whole handwritten treatise that, I mean, that was like, wow. And it was, uh, I mean, I learned a lot uh, about Bachi and what he thought from that treatise. Um, the, so uh, another archive is the Archivio di Stato di Roma, which has, um, which has uh, I mean, it's a little, uh, as people know who have worked there, um, uh, there are um, uh, catalog. There are indexes of, that are for all the thousands of things that are in there, and um, so I worked there a lot. I worked at the Capitol Line. I worked at the um, Biblioteca Angelica, where I found um, where I found manuscripts by um, Marliani, uh, Greek manuscripts. Um, and uh, things related to the flooding of the Tiber River. Um, I worked at the Casa Natenza Library, which has, I mean, there are just so many libraries in Rome that you, you can just go from one to another, the Jesuit Library or Archive. Um, yeah. I kind of read, that also really shows in a book how you're drawing from so many different types of sources. And so one way um, to read this story or your story is to sort of read it as a story about the public space perhaps even the public sphere. So toward the end of the book, you're especially in the chapter about reforming uh, the street or reforming of the street, you describe in great detail how papal interest in paving and straightening streets extended to some extent to controlling the people that used those same streets. So the Jewish community of Rome was forced into a single area of the city, prostitutes were expelled, and the movements of beggars and vagabonds were restricted and subjected to intense scrutiny. Papal bulls were published to suppress violence. So it almost seems as if they're cleansing or cleaning the street to fill and then to fill them up again with processions and public dis public mm -hmm. displays of papal power. Mm -hmm. So you already told us a little bit about how you not don't really like this papal. Uh, um, we can cut this out. Um, so it's almost as if they're cleaning or cleansing the streets mm -hmm. to fill them again with processions and the public displays of um, the papal power. So can you maybe talk a little bit um, about to what extent you think your book could be about um, describing papal interests um, in controlling and policing Rome's public space? Mm -hmm. um, that good. That's a good question. And, and I mean, I don't want to totally minimize papal power. Papal power was very important. Okay. So um, on the other hand, it wasn't absolute. And um, the in all of these things, controlling the 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 um, Jews, controlling prostitutes, um, controlling vagabonds, beggars, and poor people who were flooding into Rome. The latter, and the and Rome was filled with prostitutes, both um, courtesans, wealthy courtesans, and um, impoverished um, pr prostitutes. 
there were constant attempts to control these people and also to control dress. I didn't. I had to uh, remove that mm -hmm. from the book because the book got too long. But there were sumptuary laws that were very interesting and um, were constantly, the pubs would constantly tell the Capitoline Council, could you, okay, you're in charge of controlling the dress of the people in Rome. And they would form a committee and do nothing, which is what their response was. Like, no, we're not going to do that. But they don't say that. They just form a committee and then nothing happens. So I think there were attempts to control the public space, including the people. Um, I should also mention that there were frequent public executions, um, which uh, and which is a very grim uh, for us part of Rome, I think, at that time, and which are very forgotten in their graphic awfulness. Um, and that was also an attempt to control the population and the people. I mean, I think the bottom line is, though, that they didn't actually succeed that well either in controlling the people or in in keeping the streets clean and paved. So, and that and those are two parts of the same issue, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, what what were the medieval buildings which were destroyed in this process? Uh, so, while the papacy is engaged in this violence against the people, but also presumably against the city itself in the paving, for example, of mm -hmm. huge cities or. Um, uh, streets like the Via Giulia, um, what 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 went under that street? Basically, were there structures which maybe we would find interesting, but 16th century popes might not, like medieval structures? And I guess more generally, my question is, um, how did the studies of the Middle Ages, which had already been underway, you know, since the time of the mid 15th century with Biondo Flavio, for example, mm -hmm. uh, how did that play into discussions about what's worth keeping, what's worth not? you know, destroying, and how does that inform new building, the creation of new buildings? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that's a good, a good and complicated question. Um, well, some of the popes, I mean, uh, David Carmen has a very good book about, um, uh, about how the destruction wasn't total at all, that there was great interest in conservation at that time. And, of course, their antiquarians were very active at this time, um, they were interested in ancient Rome um, because there was so much construction. Um, they often dug ditches and found ancient statues and an antiquity. In fact, it was like a hobby digging in Rome because you could find mm -hmm. uh, ancient coins and then you could sell them or ancient busts and all kinds of different things. So, um, and and remember that medieval Rome was much smaller than. The, it was in the 16th century. So in a sense, not so much medieval stuff was destroyed. I think that's, it is, um, that's correct to say. Uh, but when you get to Sixtus V, the Septizonium, which is this large facade at the side of the Palatine Hill, was Sixtus V, did not care about antiquities, and um, he just had that destroyed under protest. There were protests um, and used the materials for other construction. There were also many, I mean, the quarry, Rome was a quarry, and the quarry was marbles lying around from ancient structures. So, um, so there was a lot of destruction that went on. Um, yeah, there was, I mean, I can't, aside, the Septizonium is the most 
uh, egregious destruction of a large, magnificent ancient monument. And had Sixtus V lived, he would have had the Colosseum basically destroyed to fo- to make it into a uh, wool factory, but he died, so we could be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any question about money? So funding always seems to be an issue. So whether it's maintaining the streets or building a new project, the popes and the council, city council, they never have any money. Can you maybe take us into some examples of how they're starting to... Um, impose taxes on the population and how they're trying to avoid the meat tax, which is particularly dangerous for them to impose. Yeah, yes. Um, Well, I mean, you can't really say that the popes had no money. The popes had, you know, what we would call billions of dollars if we were in the U.S., um, or scooty, millions millions of scooty (laughs) if you were, or or ducats, they're interchangeable. However, the, um, the, all of these huge uh, infrastructure projects cost a huge amount of money. And the fact was that there was no agreement on who would pay for things. And the popes did not want, they, they did not want to pay for these things. They wanted the people of Rome to pay for them. And the Capitoline Council um, was very uh, deeply indebted, and and they were concerned about a population that was um, often in semi-starvation or actual starvation, um, paying more taxes on their food or wine, and uh, their wine was part of their food. So, um, the ta- the money, um, the financing was very complicated. Uh, you could uh, fund a bridge repair by going around the masters of the streets, going around knocking on doors and getting collecting money from every house around it. This was a standard thing. Um, and uh, of course, it, it was uh, people tried to avoid it all the time, I guess, by not being home or by saying they were too impoverished or then but then also that did not raise uh, enough funds to do what they wanted to do and so they had to have um uh, they had these bond issues called monty and the monty was a complicated thing in which well i mean i guess it wasn't so complicated but you let uh some rich banker probably from florence lent a large sum of money to the council or to the pope or to someone, and um, they um, they bought bond. They did this by uh, buying shares of, or called luoghi, and each share was usually 100 scudi. And then um, they did this because they got interest. And so the the um, Capitoline Council, if they had a Monty, um, would get create a new Monty, they would get a big um, sack of money, but then they'd have to pay interest. And they did this over and over again. And so they were, um, was, they were inc- incredibly uh, submerged in debt, and they constantly fought the meat tax. And part of the, you, so you have to fund the interest, and you fund the interest by taxes. And um, the meat tax was one that they always tried to avoid, which is a tax on the meat that people buy in the in the um, in the market. And the people hated the meat tax. 
um, and they resisted it, and the council always tried to um, not have it be the meat tax because they were really afraid that um, of the consequences, I think. Um, and they wanted the wine tax, which is called the wine tax, which is which was actually um, a tax on that was on foreign wine, not on domestic wine. I have to conclude that there was enough domestic wine so that the people would not get upset if there was a tax on foreign wine. And there were vineyards all through all around Rome, so. Um, uh, so for every single, there was no planning in the way we have today. There, for every single project, um, the project had to be decided, but a lot of the decision was you had to raise money for it. And for uh, virtually every single project, there was a fight about that. And they ran out of money. Um, and, so, and so that's why it's remarkable that, for example, Antonio Trevisi was given... 23,000 scudi to repair the Aqua Virgine, and he failed. Um, that was a remarkable amount of money that was actually given by the, um, um, by, the, by the papacy, not by the council. But the council was supposed to provide part of it, and um, the council was outraged that this was going on. Um, so money was always a problem. Um, infrastructure was always a problem, and just as it is today. In, my, in, in a way, it's similar to modern society, except there were no bureaucratic structures to um, automatically work. Like there, we we have, um, you know, a Department of Sanitation, and we have employee employees that go around collecting trash and cleaning streets and. Uh, we have these structures. I mean, we have a lot of infrastructure problems, we meaning the entire world, really. Um, but um, in a way, we also have bureaucratic structures to take care of them, even though they might be insufficiently funded. But the 16th century Rome did not have these, these um, infrastructure uh, bureaucracies in place at all, or even they hadn't even decided who should be responsible for what and when, and so when you when you had wanted to clean the streets, which are were were full of sewage, you had to um, often have a special legislation, and then um, you had to find the money. And then when that pope died or that those masters of the streets stopped doing that, the streets would fill up again. In other words, they were never really clean, except unless there was a procession, and then they would clean it for that. But otherwise. Um, so this is an early modern, that's why I say it constantly, this is an early modern city, it's not a modern city. And I think it's a mistake to project modernity onto the city in that sense. So exactly, so since there were no permanent structures to create a bureaucracy in a modern sense, it seems that you know maybe that term is anachronistic in this context. But I was wondering generally, do Romans in this period have an idea of an urban you know system supported by public funding? Is that a concept they have? And if so, does it do they derive it from the ancient Romans, for example, who I would think did have this kind of idea, which was functional in reality? Like the the idea. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'm interested also in, in the connection between theory and practice, mm -hmm. and whether the Romans are only doing this through trial here or through, you through know, what, what? Tr trial and error, oh. or are they actually you know, researching the problem by looking at ancient models? 
Um, they they looked at ancient models all the time, but um, in terms of structures and in terms of their ideal and in terms of, for example, how the ancient Romans controlled um, Tiber River flooding and they idealized the Romans. They The Romans, to them, knew how to do engineering. But I don't see this... I don't see... A dis I see hundreds of arguments about financing, but I don't see any real stepping back and theorizing about financing. It's interesting. And um, after all, the ancient Romans got all their construction done through slavery. And um, you didn't have that in 16th century Rome. I mean, you didn't have... Uh, uh, well, I mean, Sixes the Fifth Streets were repair were made by galley slaves. This is true. Something I didn't get into my book, I forgot to put it in, but it's very interesting. Um, but for the most part, they had to raise the money, and there really wasn't, a, there wasn't agreement. There was constant uh, conflict. And even, even such um, things as the repair of the uh, great columns, Trajan's column and the column of Marcus Aurelius, uh, the Pope, the Pope, Sixes V, thought the people should pay for that, and they thought they should not pay for that. And so, but that was true of bridges. It was true of street paving. It was true of cleaning, street cleaning. Um, and so, there are the. I talk a lot about the masters of the streets, and the masters of the streets were civic nobles who were appointed to be in charge of the streets and different issues that had to do with the streets, and there were submasters of the streets who were usually practical men. Um, and Antonio Trevisi, one of the characters in the book, was a submaster of the street at one point. But that doesn't mean there was a bureaucracy that had to do with the streets. And often it's talked about as if this was a bureaucracy, just like modern bureaucracy. It was not. So um, it just depended on what the masters decided to do. and. And they didn't have any um, free access to money, uh, you know, so um, uh, they were paid eventually. But um, th these were things that were just not, I mean, and I do think if you, it would be interesting to look at this from the 16th century up through the 19th century and see how this is resolved because, uh, and I don't think that's been done because um, the problem is that if, if you just think that the popes order something and then they finance it and do it, then you're not going to see this issue. But I think this issue, I mean, in modern Rome, even though modern Rome is not necessarily an ideal sanitary city, but um, in modern Rome you have these structures as in many, uh, you know, modern um, industrialized cities. But you didn't in the 16th century, so the whole story of how gradually um, sort of bureaucratic structures were put in place, I think is an interesting one that might be researched. So one part that we haven't really talked about is the maps. So all these ongoing attempts to transform the physical city and the infrastructure, they find a visible form in map making and cartography of the period. So maybe can you talk us through that part of your research? Well, that was very interesting, and I wasn't, uh, I think at the beginning I didn't expect to have chapters on maps, but it just happens that, uh, well, first of all, it happens that in the famous Buffalini map, uh, the first 
um, separate, it's a huge wall map, ethnographic map, measured map of Rome, uh, published in 1551, has, uh, of which we have no uh, extant copies. So the extant copies are 1560, published by Antonio Trevisi, the engineer that failed to complete the Aqua Virgine. And on the bottom of the map are these letters by Antonio Trevisi to various um, entities and people urging his solution to Tiber River flooding. So that's how I got into maps. I mean, and then, um, then I saw that in the late 16th century specifically, there are so many maps made. And if you walked in Rome from the Campo Marzio to the, I mean, from the uh, Campo di Fiori to the um, uh, Piazza Navona, they would be lined with print shops selling uh, all kinds of images of Rome and of, um, uh, <clears throat> of monuments in Rome, of buildings, of paintings, of statues found in Rome, but also maps. And there was this huge um, production of different kinds of maps in late 16th century Rome. So I, I started thinking of this as, well, uh, people are thinking about reconstructing the city, and they are reconstructing the city on paper in many different ways, and in ways that show their different points of views and their arguments. Um, and so that's how I got into the map making, and um, I mean, and they're visually beautiful. So, and they're just strikingly. And many of the maps that I talk about are available in a tiny number of examples or. Um, sometimes really none, uh, but I mean, so you go to the British Library and you lay out this six foot by four foot map and it's just astounding. And you can't really reproduce them properly. But, um. And correct me if I'm wrong, but most of, some of these maps at least, they appeared during the reign of six, uh, the fifth, who is the great urbanizing pope with whom you end this book. Mm -hmm. um, so this pope constructed new Vatican Library, he moved a couple of uh, obelisks across the mm -hmm. city, and um, he completed the construction of a new aqueduct, the Aqua Felice. Um, so what happens after him? So many later popes also attempted to leave their mark in the city, and I'm thinking here of uh, Paul V and mm -hmm. Alexander VII. Mm -hmm. So how can we take your story into the 17th century, maybe even the 18th century, mm -hmm. and collect all the, connect all those popes to your, uh, to your work? Well, that's a good question. I mean, originally I was going to go to um, 1612 when the Aqua Paola was finished, See, that's teleological history of technology. Uh, an aqueduct is finished, so I go to there. <laughs> but um, for one thing, um, I couldn't read the Cameline documents for that long. I would just throw myself over a bridge, some, you know, bridge in Rome. Probably. Love the metaphor. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, um, but also, as I gradually thought of, you know, I mean, I, this, I didn't have clear ideas when I began, but as I, as I was working on this, I gradually came to feel very strongly that, um, um, that this kind of, tele it's sort of an unconscious teleology that people work with, um, should be countered in some way, not, not by making something up, but just, so here's the issue. If somebody, I, I was at this conference in which um, Kenneth Stowe, a historian of the of the Jewish ghetto, an excellent historian of the Jew, a great historian, foundational work on the Jewish ghetto, was saying, 
Um, there was a sewer in, uh, the, in the ghetto that went from this place in the ghetto to the um, Tiber River. And his argument was that actually, you know, Rome was very clean and it was an open sewer uh, until 1606. I'm not sure I'm remembering the date right, but early 17th century. And then it was closed and that shows that. Well, I, like what about the people that lived around the open sewer in, um, you know, um, 1585? It, so, I mean, all history is local. It has to be local. You can't just, uh, I think you can't just um, breeze over the fact of that there were, these were local places and this is where people lived. They were real human beings and they lived by an open sewer. So what does it matter what happened in 1606 if you're living in 1585 by an open, and there were many open sewers in Rome, by the way, not just one. Um, <clears throat> And so I liked, so I thought, okay, we'll do, I'll do something arbitrary. I'll end it with the death of Sixtus V. And that's why I end it with a famine. There are two floods. So Sixtus V has been very idealized as the person that brought order to Rome, which he did not. And, um, and even people that are specialists in violence in Rome and the bandits all agree that he did not end violence in Rome uh, or the bandits. Um, uh, and so I just end in 1590 at his death. And what is the situation then? I mean, you still have oxen running through, running over people in the streets of Rome. You still have goats eating, walking around. I mean, it so, I mean, there's a great tendency to idealize Rome in particular, and so I'm trying to, like, okay, this, I'm just saying this is what it was like then, you know, at that moment, that all history is local. So. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up, but as a final thought, maybe you could share with us ideas for future projects that you have going, or... Um, well, that would take two or three <laughs> hours. <laughs> um, so one of, one of uh, I have two projects that come right out of this project. Um, one is um, I and um, I, my a colleague, Ann Huppert, who is an architectural historian, um, are going to build, we're going to build the Jesu. And so the Jesu is a huge structure in the middle of Rome. And one of the things I uh, found when I was doing research on this project was a wonderful building account of the building of the Jesu, starting with the foundations and going to the roof, including the facade and all the decorative elements on the facade. And um, it's so detailed and it has dates. So it says the name of, say, the bricklayer and his, uh, how much he was paid, and you know what the date is. And so my idea, but I couldn't really do it. I was going to have a, a chapter on construction, but it was too complicated. It would take 10 more years, and I felt that I was over my head. But now, so now we're starting a whole new book, and, and we're doing it together. We're making a database of all the workers, and the Collegio Romano, another huge building built by the Jesuits, was built at the same time. And so we're going to write about building construction. We're not going to write about architectural history as it's often written as a history of design. But rather, so how was the building built? What did they, how did they build the foundation? 
What did they do? I mean, this is never really discussed in any great detail. And um, it, it's a challenge. So, because we don't know how much, we have this wonderful document that we're entering into a database, but we don't know how much, uh, and we want to we want to go to archives and I want to find um, who these people were. Who is Bernardo um, Muratore da Bologna? Who was he? Where did he live? How many children? And yet, possibly it can be found out by going to different archives and... Um, and so that's one project. <clears throat> a second project is Antonio Trevisi, who died in prison. I would love to find the, some kind of legal process uh, about his... Uh, I know I have the dates when he was taken off that, the, his disastrous Aqua Virgine project in um, 1566, so with the dates... There might not have been any kind of processo, but if there was, I would love to find it. I've looked for it a little bit, but I'm, um, but I haven't found it. And it'll, it would be wonderful if I could find it. And I'm going to do a systematic search for that. And I have other documents about that debacle, which uh, even if I don't find um, a process, I can, I can, uh, I'm going to write something about the details of why that was a complete disaster. And then I'm going to write a book called The Lure of Machines, something different. Well, thank you. Sounds very interesting. We'll look forward to reading those books. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for this thank interesting you. conversation. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah.